Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Yeah, there's there's no question to know. David Lean. And you were the uh, head chapter leader of Colorado VHA? Clay Hayes. Uh, well, I got stalked by a mountain lion, uh, made a fishing pole out of a lodgepole pine. Falconry and bird dogs, can they coexist? Oh man, and do they. Shitty weather and lots of bears. That's what this podcast is about. You made a point when you get up in those high basins and the thunderstorms come rolling in. That's how I got into trail running. Some people are just wired that way. Sure, sure. Thanks, Ryan. And hey, Kevin, nice to see you. Um, yeah, Eat Wild, we, we do uh, like hunter education and training, but with more of a focus on uh, trying to try to make hunting more welcoming and inclusive to maybe a, like a, a new generation of hunters or people that don't come from traditional hunting families. Like I grew up in a hunting family, super, you know, my path to become a hunter was well supported along the way. But uh, I live in Vancouver and British Columbia in, in, the, in the city here. And uh, I've kind of part of the arts and music community growing up here. I, I was into hunting all growing up, but nobody else hunted as a kid, right, in, in the city here. But now, like, you know, this, as I, in, in my, you know, 20s and such, like, hanging out, man, more and more people were just asking me about hunting. And, and, uh, and you know, how, they wanted to learn how to hunt. And it's just sort of clued in that there's, like, a whole bunch of people that don't know how to start hunting that want to learn to hunt. And uh, that's sort of where the Eat Wild project started. It's just building workshops, courses, and and ultimately building community that's inclusive and inviting for for people to come and participate in hunting. So that's kind of what we do, and it's been a lot of it's been a fun ride so far. So how long has Eat Wild been doing this? Uh, I think this was our tenth year. Like we 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 sort of st- we started Eat Wild by doing this uh, what we called our Hunter Field Skills Workshop, which was like a uh, a three-day immersive deer hunting experience. We took people up to a ranch. We fed them awesome wild food. We like uh, surrounded them with what eat wild mentors, which were essentially my hunting partners of you know a bunch of o- older gentlemen that are excellent hunters and great storytellers. And we just hung out for three days and tried to teach folks everything you could figure out about hunting in three days. And and uh, and that that was just a hit. People just loved it. And I've been trying to offer those you know. You know, four of those a year for the past ten years, and we, we could. They are just constantly so much interest, and and it creates so many, so many communities of of new hunting partners. This which is really mm-hmm. cool out of, out of those experiences. So that was ten years ago. We started that, and and we branched out and done a bunch of other. We do like a regular butchering workshop in in town here at a at a friend's restaurant, and we do shooting workshops, and and then we've been doing all since COVID lots of online stuff and webinars you guys do foraging and all sorts of stuff right it's not just limited to hunting big game at all oh for sure and that's sort of the when you start to look at the community of people that have been attracted to eat well it's not just about hunting it's about being more you know responsible for where your food comes from and knowing more about Mm -hmm. it and and also just god having having some kind of adventure like having something to Mm -hmm. to, i mean we we all love hunting because it's so much fun it gets us outside but you have a lot of fun mushroom hunting or looking for fiddleheads or, you know, so we've been just building programming around, you know, any, any excuse to go out and look for wild food and, and ultimately cook it up or we're launching our 
wild game cooking workshop series this uh, you know in January. So we'll be doing webinars and have inviting you guys to come cook with us over over Zoom in your kitchens and stuff. So that'll Sweet. be a hoot. So it's it's uh, funny because I mean. I, I totally get it. We talk to new hunters. I talk to new hunters on occasion. And if you haven't grown up in a hunting family, or even if you've been kind of away from hunting for a while, the learning can be fairly fairly steep curve. I mean, butchering, not something that people that normally live in a city and stuff have just gotten used to. Not everyone's like, oh yeah, here's how I cut up a deer. Here's how I would cut up this. So... What do some? What does like your butchering workshop cover? What does it look like? Huh, that's uh, they're kind of neat. So I I kind of approach everything from like what are the perceived barriers that someone who doesn't hunt or they're getting into hunting and the biggest one is like people are like they'll say hey I don't know what I'll do when I'm standing in front of a dead animal and and looking down I don't know how I'm going to feel I don't know what to do next right and so I try to break that process down into sort of manageable steps like starting with hey like take a minute for yourself and for the deer to give thanks to it and recognize the the experience you've just had it's hugely impactful human experience when you take an animal's life and like mm-hmm. take some time for that like that's okay like if you're if you're crying that's cool you should be crying because it's a big deal you just took an animal's life like but just inviting people to take that time um, and then and then trying to demystify the gutting process. I think people feel that gutting an animal is really, you know, be very technical and difficult. Well, it's, it's three cuts. It should take you three minutes if you've done it a few times. Like, it's not <clears> difficult. But and people are worried about spoiling meat and cutting into the gut. So, again, just demystifying that stuff, reducing the barriers, to, to uh, like reducing their perceived barriers, really. Um, the, the big thing that I really encourage is, is, you know, I want to empower people to hunt away from camp and their vehicles, like, and, you know, wander around the forest, you know, find where animals live and then, and hunt them there. But to do that, you have to be able to break animals down and pack them out of the woods. So we do, uh, we show, we show people how to break, uh, we, we just use pigs because they're available and we can get them from the butcher across the street. And we just show the basic, you know, quartering cuts or deboning cuts, take the legs off, take the back strap out, take the rib meat off. And, and we share that with people. And then we do, um, that takes about an hour and a half. And then we do a second half, which is kind of, if you took all those pieces home, and you, how how would you butcher them at home? And we talk about roast steaks, stew meat, and found foundational pieces or fundamentals of, of butchering at home. And we do that and have a couple of beers. And usually takes up about three hours. And people go home pretty happy with a bunch of pigs, pig meat in their in their in their bag. So it's a hoot. It's fun, and uh, it's it's like it's cool too because it's like half the people there are on their journey to become hunters, and then half the people there are just like foodies or just curious about how how stuff comes together and so it's kind of great to have that cross-section of people like we're here on on, you know we're in the hipster part of vancouver where we do this and so like you have this great cross-section of people um talking about hunting sharing experiences and it's just i think it's just good for the hunting community to have that exposure to uh, like the really positive story around it you know yeah Yeah. now what are what are canadian what are canadian regulations on on butchering and everything is because I know like say for instance here in the states Colorado is different than Alaska as far as the regulations of what you have to take in the field is it contiguous all the way across Canada same thing or is is there a lot of gray area there as well and what does a hunter have to carry out of the woods 
Well, across Canada, for for all of our edible species, which includes now includes bear, we, we up until a couple of years ago, you could leave portions of bear, I believe, in the in the in the woods. But uh, all all of the edible meat, including the rib meat, uh, neck meat. Um, is required to come out uh, with you, um, and and that like I said, that includes bears now too. So, and but mo- most of our bear, you know, most people hunt bear for food here anyway, so it's not a big deal. Um, uh, but yeah, so we, we as far as like uh, regulations, we have to leave evidence of sex and species attached to the animal, and that's so. For us, for deer here in BC, they recently changed the regulation. You have to leave the tail attached to an edible portion of the animal with the hair on it. Which is that's pretty new, and I and I am not too sure if I'm a. It's kind of a pain. It's a kind of a pain in the ass to try and figure out how to do that because if you're trying to debone and skin an animal out, but still leave the tail attached, it it can be kind of hit and miss if the tail stays attached once you've skinned out the rest of the animal and left just the tail piece on. Um, kind of working on a video eventually just or a system that works sort of better than what I've been able to pull off so far, but. Um, and then, just uh, real quick, is that yeah. a is that a black tail mule deer thing? Like they're they're trying to distinguish between the two, or why why the tail? Oh, of course, hey, eh? that yeah, for sure. Well, I think it it just yeah. it makes it easier for our conservation officers to identify the species that you've harvested, whether it's a white tail or a black tail or a mule okay. deer, um, which yeah. is you know, I mean, you know, most experienced conservation officers can tell just by looking at a patch of hair somewhere on the animal, which we used to do, just leave a little bit of hair on the shank of the deer. Um, and, and most, you know, most experienced game wardens would be able to be able to tell the difference, but, uh, uh, I guess it just makes it easier. Um, it's just a little harder for us as we're butchering it, but I'm going to, I'll figure it out. I'll figure out a system that works well, but if anybody's got so, any tips out there, let me know. I was going to ask you for tips because I'm like, I would be kind of dumbfounded like, now how do I get this darn tail off, you know, yeah. and, and leave it attached to something? Yeah. Well, especially if you're, if you're like pulling the guts out, not doing like a, a gutless method because I feel like the first portion you go after is you try to separate all that stuff the tail you know cut around the you know the asshole yeah yeah <laughs> for sure yeah what what's the process well there? for so i mean this is what i've been like i i like i literally had we last year we shot two mule deer my my uh my, my girlfriend or now fiance uh uh we shot two beautiful mule deer we're in a great setting and we and we were going to like film this video on how to do this so we could share it with our community of hunters and like the first i got like flawless video like this perfect dialogue all the way through audio turned out great and the, and just as i was like literally lifting up the leg to show people the leg with the tail attached the tail falls off I'm like, okay, well, that didn't work. Okay, so that's not the way to do no, it. No, no, because 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 the tail there's there's not enough muscle tissue on the tail to keep it attached to the rest of the carcass. So you actually have to leave uh, a strip of hide from the tail all the way up on top of its rump, and so you have to kind of have a ta- basically a skin a, a tag of hide attaching the whole thing because the because the, the tail itself will not stay attached. Once you start skinning in and around underneath the tail and around the rump there, it'll eventually just want to work its way off. So, so yeah, you have to kind of leave a little strip, which is a giant pain in the butt because it's, it's all, you know, the last thing you want to have is a big hairy tail next to this lovely piece of skinned out meat that you so carefully, you know, transported out of the woods. And now you're going to, you know, lay it, lay it down here and there and in a game bag with the tail on it. So it's not, not ideal, but we, we, we cover up, but I take a little, like a uh, little plastic bag and just cover up the tail and tape it off and it limits the amount of exposure for the hair onto the meat. But, 
I, I'm, I'm like, I'm pretty much ready to write a letter to the, to my counterparts there in the CO service and be like, Hey, how do you do this? Right. Any tips? <laughs> so yeah, it sounds like a skin bridge. Yeah. Really. Skin bridge. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I'll put that in the video and I'll give you credit, Kevin. <laughs> you need a skin bridge. <laughs> yeah. Hide bridge. Uh, I, I feel that every time I'm trying to leave evidence of sex on, it's like as many times as I've done it, I still got to like think and be like, how do I do this again? It's always, I always do it a little bit differently. What, what, Ryan, what do you, what do you, sex. do you leave a, what, what's the requirement where you guys are for evidence of sex? So, so yeah, we, and typically where I go, uh, you know, we're doing gutless method because we're packing them out. And, um, <clears throat> so you have to leave, you know, on a bowl, uh, you got to leave, um, at least the sack on attached to one of the, the quarters, um, I just learned that this year. It doesn't have to be the the full ball. You don't have to have the balls in there. It's just got to be the sack, just enough. Oh, and um, yeah, you just got to leave it attached to one of the quarters. I think technically you're supposed to leave one like ball attached to each quarter. I'm not exactly sure on the on the rules, but anyway, long story short, I typically just do like a little skin bridge from you know the hide skin on bridge, there. Yeah. But it, it, yeah. <laughs> Skin skin bridge for the, for the sack. Calling it a new term. It's going to be all over the internet it's now. The skin. Yeah. Yeah. You, you need a skin bridge for your sack, man. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, as you get older, I think you do, right? So, <laughs> so. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, so we leave, uh, since we're talking, you know, cock and balls, uh, I, we leave the, uh, I leave the penis, or I show people to leave the penis attached. Because the, because mm. the Paul, I have had the issue of the, of the, similar issues the tail like kind of thinking you've got it all figured out and it's attached and you you've got an adequate skin bridge and all of a sudden the balls are still on the bottom of the game bag when you pull the leg out you're like oh that didn't work out so good but i do find yeah. that if, if we that the penis it's actually quite well attached on the inside of the of the uh, uh of the inside round there um uh, and uh or inside of the the leg i should say and um and I just actually leave because like, we only you just have to leave a couple of inches of it. So I actually will just leave. Uh, I usually take the if I, I don't take the pelvis with me. I go straight down to the pelvis and then work the blade down through the through the hip joint and then just peel the the legs back out. But I'll leave just a strip of the penis attached to each side and just just a couple inches of it and then get get rid of the rest. And that that meets our legal definition here, and uh, and it's certainly a lot cleaner than and than leaving the. And lighter than, than, than taking out the balls as well. So you cut another dude's junk. <laughs> it, it, it's always difficult, man. It's always difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's never comfortable. And like, <laughs> and your training guys are like, oh, this is not well, good. Everybody, man, like nobody likes to see that. You know? Oh, no, yeah. I'm not. Yeah. Just grabbing a handful of sack and, and pulling it as hard as possible. Never, uh, never good for for your own no. conscious there. No. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. This is a great segue to <laughs> to one of the questions, but we're going to quit talking about balls, penis, sack for for a minute. We can come back to it back to if it's relevant. Um, I was curious because not only just the species and stuff, but I was curious, like, say I decided to move to Canada, right? Yeah. Um, say I decided to move to British Columbia. What all would I have to go through to become a hunter in British Columbia? Would there be differences in gun regulations? Would I have to get licensed? Would I have to get some sort of license for ammo? 
or yeah. would I have to go through a hunter safety permitting? Would I have, what all would that look like? Well, that's interesting. Uh, uh, well, I could tell you, I, I think, I think for, from an American coming up here, no doubt you've taken a, a hunter safety course somewhere along the way. So mm-hmm. as long as you can demonstrate you've taken a hunter safety course, typically most, I believe that most hunter safety courses are somewhat interchangeable across North America, or at least some of them are recognized across jurisdictions. Like I know that if you take the Alberta hunting safety course, it's recognized here in BC, and I imagine it's similar because I know the programming is very similar um, across between the between the jurisdictions. Um, as far as our licensing for firearms, that's, that would be the tricky one for you because you'd have to um, you'd have to call or you have to apply for a. Uh, your your possession and acquisition license. All, all Canadians, if they were to carry a gun, need to have a have a gun license, which requires you to take a like a one or a two day training course, um, and then go through a certification process where you you apply and they just do a background check on you. And that process is is kind of arduous to some degree, um, and it takes often takes you know six months to a year for that process to go through. Partly because of a backlog, but partly it's just a fairly thorough check. And I don't know, you know, I don't know if you've got any. You know skeletons in your background there, Kevin, but that we'd uh, we'd definitely find them. So yeah, dip- so so I would have to take six months to a year to get my firearms permit. Yeah, and okay. then uh, yeah, and that's provided you don't have like any skeletons in your closet. We don't know about, and uh, but I'm sure you're a trustworthy guy, and we we give you a gun license here in BC. Um, uh, and then as far as like once you have your gun license, then you can go ahead and uh, um, buy. Uh, ammunition or guns once you have that license you you just need to present that to to purchase to, to purchase carry own a firearm there's there's storage requirements obviously and transportation requirements and um that you'd have to follow uh but other than that it's, it's pretty straightforward i mean the beauty of being up here though like once you have your hunting license and 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 other you know and your hunting license or your firearms license is that we have incredible over-the-counter hunting opportunities so you can hunt elk in the it's elk is a $25 tag and you can hunt elk throughout BC during the rut with a rifle, which I, which I know is kind of a unique thing. Yeah. And, uh, I, 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 I got my first sheep this year. It was an over the counter sheep tag. I think it was a $60, you know, tag to go hunt stone sheep here in BC. Not, not an easy hunt by any means, you know, but there's the, you have the opportunity to hunt stone sheep here or bighorn sheep with an over-the-counter tag, which is, I know, pretty unique. Um, and so that's that's really what's, I mean, among other things, the diversity of ecosystems you can hunt in here too is pretty special. Um, in the in the absence of your firearms license, you can, uh, as long as you're with someone uh, who has their license and basically sponsors you and supervises you. So um, if you were to come up hunting here, like, you know, you just have to hunt with somebody that's a, a resident with their firearms license. And, uh, I think that's sort of how they do it with the, the guide outfitting industry here in BC, um, is all, you know, they're basically, you come up and, um, and you're supported by the guide outfitter, which also kind of provides privilege around having to bring up your own hunting license and complexities around that. So. Okay. Okay. So that makes that a whole lot simpler, um, having the guide outfitter, uh, sponsor of you if you're a non-resident. Yeah. But, so it would take about a year, though, to get your own uh, firearms license and probably hunter safety and then get yeah. tags. But then you can hunt bighorn sheep every year, right? Yeah. You can, can you hunt stone every year? 
Yep. Okay. Um, can you you can hunt elk every year? Yes. You can hunt. Can you hunt moose every year? Oh yeah. Okay. Black bear every year. A couple. You get two seasons. A couple. Two seasons. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, what about grizzly? Is there no grizzly hunting or? No, no, no grizzly hunting. The grizzly hunt uh, they it was shut down about three years ago, four years ago here in BC. Um, and uh, as far as I know, I think maybe the Yukon is still open for grizzly bear hunting. I shouldn't, I shouldn't speak to that because I'm not even sure. Um, but yeah, that's been a big, big news here for the certainly the you know the BC guide outfitters here, and um, you know a lot of residents that that factored that into their hunting every year was um, big, big deal for us for sure. But other than that, you can hunt everything year round, and if you're, you know, having a great year, you can you can get them all if you have freezer space. So, well, being able to hunt elk and during the rut with a rifle is vastly different than the lower forty-eight. I think there might be a spot in the Bob Marshall Wilderness where you can do that, but it's a uh, it's in quite far. So the, the the big difference though is like I think I think there's something like oh I don't have the stats in front of me but there's like is there like there's more elk get shot in Colorado than exist in British Columbia. So that like, is when it comes how, to really, how many elk are in BC? Oh shoot! You know I have I have some notes on this somewhere. Um, I could probably find them in a minute, but. Uh, it might be right here. No, it's not right here. So um, there is an there is about 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 two thousand elk get killed in BC every year, and I think it's like a hundred thousand elk get killed in Colorado or something crazy like that. When I see the numbers, I'm always uh, I'm always blown away. I don't think it's that many that get killed here. We do have a herd that is roughly two hundred and eighty thousand, totally. and it's much smaller. So I think. It's like 40,000, so in BC it looks like you guys have about 40,000 elk, and I do think that that is about how many elk get killed every year in Colorado. Yeah. I was just looking at that today. Yeah. If you just, I'll just reach down and go, I should have a note here, if we'll take just a quick segue here, but it's here. No, I'm locked in, can't can't get at it, but I I just did a, we just did a, podcast a little while ago like on 100 success rates and like how which is a big part of what we you know what are what are the expectations of 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 killing an elk and say colorado like if uh if you're a new hunter how many years till you well i got two questions for you guys what would be a reasonable expectation for a new hunter who's figuring it out on their own to go out and kill a whitetail buck and then secondly to kill an elk what is a reasonable time frame that you would recommend someone setting their expectations around? A whitetail on public land or private? On public land. On public? Because we don't have a lot of white... Well, in Colorado, we don't have a lot of public well land whitetails. Not near the density like in Montana, Idaho. Those states, I think, have quite a bit more. I, w- I can tell you our mule deer success rate I think on public is 50, 60%, maybe a bit more. Hmm. Um, our elk success rate is generally about 20%, but I'm not 
certain if that 20% is inclusive of guides and outfitters. If it is, that would mean the regular over-the-counter self-guided person has a success rate that is far lower. And then I'm also not certain. There, there, there are guys that kill an elk just about every time out. You know, there's, there's some really good hunters that very experienced that can go kill one all the time. And I also don't know if that includes private land because on a lot of these private ranches, they have a success rate that probably runs closer to a hundred percent because you're paying 15 grand to hunt on someone's private land. Yeah. I, I feel like I remember reading somewhere, um, that, it takes about seven years, like average, and I don't know how they figure this out, but it takes for an over-the-counter public land elk hunter, takes about seven years to kill one. <clears throat> I don't know when I read that, but I mean, it sounds, sounds pretty average. I mean, you go up, um, especially if you're a new hunter and, you know, you just, especially if you're out of state, you know, you just moved to Colorado, you have no idea, you know, you haven't grown up around elk, you haven't been driving through the mountains and seen elk in this field or that field or whatever um you know it, it takes a minute to find out you know what little drainages are going up and you know there's a lot of places that you'll drive by here in Colorado at least in my personal experience um this past week especially going going kind of in a different area I've never been uh you know you look at some of these places and you're like ah there's no way that there's elk up there but there are, uh, you know, and so I think it takes a minute to kind of, you know, find out just like any species. Right. Um, but you know, just because there's a ton of elk in Colorado doesn't mean that they're, you know, evenly dispersed everywhere. So I, I think, I think that seven years to me at least sounds correct. Like I would say in my unit, like the unit that I live in, because that's the one I'm most familiar with. I would say, I think they have it estimated as about 6,500 elk in this unit. And we're probably about 50% private land. The problem is that we have some, some very large ranches that are adjacent, that are 10, 15,000 acre or even 30,000 acre ranches. And the elk know pretty quickly where the safe habitat is. And so a lot of, of the 6,500, like right now, we just finished up our finishing up our third season, right? I do not know how many elk are on public right now. Uh, I can give an example of a few years ago, I was hunting with Nathan, archery hunting, and we were archery hunting elk, and we probably spent a week pretty much out in the woods saw like one little group of elk on our way into where we were going to camp. And that was it. Uh, and then we saw maybe one or two in some other spot, but they, they were a long ways away. And after I kind of gave up on hunting, I went for a drive and saw six bulls bugling on a private ranch about 20 yards off the road. You know, it was like, you know, I, you know, I literally was like, I had a lot of cuss words going on then, you know? Uh, yeah. 
Well, that brings up a question I had for you. What's what's hunter pressure like in BC? Because I know at least here in Colorado, it's kind of been getting a little out of hand to the point where the CPW, Colorado Parks and Wildlife this year, um, just recently um, put out a survey asking hunters to fill it out. And a lot of the questions are, you know, hunter density related. What is it like in BC? It's definitely changing for sure. And I, I, you know, I think there's so many, uh, like, like I had never seen another person in the woods in like probably the first 25 years of hunting in the last five years, I've actually bumped into people when I've been out there in the woods. Now, granted, I, you know, I typically hunt places that I'm trying to avoid such things, but now that I'm even trying to avoid places, um, yeah, I, I'd say, you know, and, and where I hunt elk, like it was, it's, it was a good spot and it's sort of blown out now. Like I don't even, I'm constantly doing these sort of, um, new, you know, adventures to try and get away from, uh, <coughs> pressure. But my expectation of hunting is not to see anybody and to hit, that, to be hunting what pri- pri- public land with unpressured elk. That's so, funny because that's exactly the same here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, same. the, uh, the area that I used to hunt quite a bit, probably have hunted the most. When I first started going up there, there was an outfitter and then me. And if I was with anybody and maybe a couple people would walk in a mile or so, but there'd be nobody up there. It was, it was pretty much my own little mountain range. And now on second season, I had a friend who said there were 36 people in that area. And I was like, well, nobody's killing anything. And then the area that you went with us, Ryan, uh, was an area that I used to hunt quite a bit. And then I quit hunting it because it had so much pressure. Like I told you, like one time I showed up at that one little park and there was 12 people sitting around it. And I was like, if an elk walks in here, there's going to be a fight that breaks out. Uh, so, but then the other day you were up there because we didn't, the one area of the pumpkin patch now is probably what we'll call it. Uh, there wasn't really any elk up there. And the area you went, there were at least some elk up there for the first couple of days and there wasn't a whole lot of pressure. Yeah, I mean, we didn't, we saw one other group of hunters. And I think that's, I think that's probably, you know, how it's gonna be. Like with hunter pressure, you know, like guys go to an area one year, they see that there's, you know 10 other trucks there maybe they'll especially if they're from out of state they've already scouted this area out they're going to commit to that area but then next year they're going to go try to find a different spot so hopefully you know there's a little rotation going of you know spots and you just got to get get in the right you know position in that cycle yeah yeah but yeah it's it's been it's been getting rough rougher and rougher here in colorado well we've had such privilege of having it all to ourselves i guess you know i'll have to do a bit of sharing, but I, I'm curious as to like, we, we have something called the limited entry hunting system up here where, I mean, I no doubt you guys have tag systems too, right? Where you apply for the opportunity. And we've, we've used that system for moose hunts particularly because, you know, there's, there's, well, there are good moose populations here. You, you need to, for, for most, well, for the Southern part of the province, uh, you have to put in for a lottery opportunity and that just, you know, staggers out and where, you know, staggers where and how often, you know, people can go hunting for moose. And, 
Um, there are open areas, to, lots of places you can still go with. You have to work a little harder to get into those areas for moose on, on, a, on a given year. But I expect we'll see more of that just to sort of manage the hunting pressure, not so much how many animals get killed. Cause I think you're absolutely right, Kevin, like, you know, you know, there's, if you get three or four or five hunting groups hunting the same hill, like the elk is not there the next day. Whereas, you know, the, I think of the hill that my hunting partner, Jeff and I hunted for years, like we would carefully hunt this hill for a week, try not to blow it out and just waiting for the elk to cooperate. And we'd eventually kill an elk or two on the hill every year. But now there's, three or four camps sort of attacking that hill um, on opening day and that's it. So you might as well be just sitting up on top of the hill on opening day and wait for the elk to come scramble back up over the top and into the areas that nobody can get to. And that's it for that whole hunt. So it's, it's, it's a little bit, yeah. So I think that hunting pressure may have to be managed somehow um, just to maintain an experience. Cause I'd rather wait my turn to like go hunt elk properly than have to, like, I, I hate hunting competition. I hate managing my hunt around what I think some other guy is going to do to screw me up by inadvertently or, 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 or you know, uh, just by the virtue of being there. Um, yeah, it's always so constantly trying to figure out a way to, you know, get away from other guys, which is, which is why I really love your tents, by the way, because it, you know, it, it, you know, a nice lightweight tent allows me to get a little further away from everybody. Um, well, I I agree with you on I probably would rather have more quality hunts, even if I hunt a little less, just because of the pressure. And I think that, I don't think with the pressure that more animals are getting killed. I think they're mm-hmm. just getting blown out. And the, I'm kind of like you. Um, I think... Maybe we could use this term. You seem to like to cultivate the hunting experience and the place that you're hunting and not not go in there, you know, Yosemite Sam style, you know, guns a-blazing to where announcing your presence where every elk is like, I'm out of here. But when you get a lot of hunters in an area, you also get a lot of guys that hunt different tactics. And invariably you're probably going to find someone that has a very aggressive tactic and that almost makes everyone else adjust their tactics as well. Mm-hmm. You have to be yeah. like, we got to get these animals while they're here because they're going to be gone tomorrow. You betcha. Yeah. I, I, so one of my, one of my fishing mentors taught me when I was fishing, we got steelhead trout in the rivers here and they, uh, hold in the pools or just in the tailouts of the pools actually. But he says, you know, you know the, the tendency is to walk up to the river bank and chuck your, chuck your lure out right across the river and start fishing. He says, no, 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 start by placing the float right in front of you and the first ripple right in front of the rock that you're standing on and then cast your gear out two feet farther than that and let it run out. And then you work your way across the river, right? So you're eventually instead of just firing your gear across the river and scaring all the fish out of the pool, you just sort of work your way across, right? Carefully. And, and hopefully get a chance to fish the whole, whole stream. And if you catch a fish in the first two casts, then you still have the other 80% of the river to fish, right? Um, so that's, it's a, an analogy I, I've always used for elk hunting is like, yeah, you, 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 yeah, I mean, you can't be successful. Like, you know, you can, cr- you know, go right to the back of the country, but why not just hunt the fringes of it, hunt the fringes of it and leave yourself three or four or five days of, of hunting instead of blowing it all out in the first day rushing through there and yeah it's hard to convince other guys of doing that and uh and 
Yeah, I, I really, table. I really don't like to get into their betting areas because I believe that once you get into the big games betting areas, they go pretty much nocturnal or they get the heck out of there. And I could be wrong in that, but that's been my experience. But you'll see someone show up and be like, well, let's do this like a whitetail push and drive from the whitetail farmlands or something. <laughs> and you're like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if if, uh, if somebody was walking around, it's kind of like what we were talking about with Clay this morning. If somebody was walking around your house, you'd be, you'd be all, you know, you'd stay at your house. But I know personally, if I came home and somebody was in my bedroom, I'd be a little freaked out. I might want to get a hotel room that night, you know? I agree. I agree. I, 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 think, I think a lot of times, you know, the, we can almost take some of these emotions that we see in the field and put them to ourselves. Because, yeah, if I come home and I'm like, who's been in my bedroom? You know, I st- uh, all of a sudden red flags are up, and I start saying, like, hmm, might be a good night to go backpacking or, or something, yeah. right? Where else have they been? Right. Um, where versus, you know, if someone's just walking by your house, walking your dog by your house, you don't give it a, a second thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is kind of uh, leads to a, a question I had for you, um, Dylan. With all this hunting pressure and, you know, I know the you know, everything you hear about hunter recruitment is that hunters are like the actual numbers are down which percentage wise might be true, right? Like I know in, in America, you know, it used to be at 12%. Now it's at 10% or whatever, but the American population is a lot bigger than it was. So technically there's more actual hunters out in the woods now than there were back in the day. How do you like, do you, are you ever conflicted about your business there about, you know, uh, like your business being trying to get people out in the woods um, do you ever feel like you've kind of created a, you know, a monster with when you go out there and you see an eat wild sticker on the back of some dude's truck in, in your elk spot? Oh yeah, totally. I was, <clears throat> yeah, I was just cringing cause I was uh, on the eat wild podcast. We did like a, a three part series on our sheep hunt and, and okay. uh, like, and like, and if you, you know, like I, it, it, it was such a cool adventure and some great storytelling that I, I wanted to share the story, but like. I also don't really want people to go sheep hunting because I mean I want it all to myself, right? And uh, you know, so but I, I think you know I think the uh, the real work that we need to do in the hunting community is not about I mean recruitment's important. We need to have people part of this community, but the real work we need to do is we need to tell a way better story out there to the public about what hunting is about and how what it means to this way of life and uh, and and promote you know promote a really good story that's ex- that people can identify with and accept and can understand why our value why these things are so important to us and 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 the needs that we have to maintain this way of life so i mean and that number one for us is habitat like our habitat is vanishing before our eyes and like i mean climate change is having a huge impact now we're seeing that you know here in bc today like the impacts are significant and it's really hard in our wildlife here in British columbia and and i think that you know we need to start tell you know do a better job. I think a lot of people see the hunting community in a really negative light. There's some really you know negative stereotypes that we we perpetuate ourselves constantly, and and I just think it sucks. We got to just we just got to do so much better. So you know what we're doing at Eat Wild is really trying to 
change the narrative, tell a different story, create a welcoming environment for a new kind of hunter that, you know, is, is not from these traditional backgrounds. Isn't just another white dude, you know, talking about killing stuff. Like it's, it's gotta be more diverse. It's gotta be more interesting than that. And, um, and it's gotta hit other notes. And I think for, for folks who are, you know, if you, if you're talking food and you're talking hunting and you're talking, taking responsibility for your food, that resonates with a much larger population of people. And, and if you're talking about connection with nature and you're talking about conservation and, and, and love for wild places and wild spaces, like that resonates with such a larger group. And if we stick to those themes and we, and we talk about that stuff more and, and we share that story with people, I think we can really build support for our way of life and, and, and ultimately support, you know, the protection of habitat and, and the wild critters that rely on it. And, so that's what, so I mean, yeah, I might lose a couple hunting spots out of the deal, but I think we're doing a better job of telling the story and we're, and we're really building a different kind of community, which is super important here for us. And that's what we need right now. Cause, um, yeah, we're like, yeah, it's not, I mean, <laughs> otherwise we're just going to lose this, this incredible privilege. And, well, and for me, it's my way of life though. So it's like, no, no, I totally agree with you. And I mean, I, I, I feel some culpability as well. Uh, with all the uh, people going back way far, sometimes I see some of my gear out there, you know, and, or or a brand that is very closely associated. And I'm, but at the same time, I'm glad people are getting out there. It's just that I do have a little bit of regret when I'm like, oh, my spot's got, you know. And I and I think it's more than just that. I think some of it is the mapping. And stuff like that, like certain maps now, that you can have it on your phone. You're no longer really afraid to go back. It'll, it'll tell you pretty much if you're standing in an elk migration route. You see the little dot, dot, and you're like, "Oh, I must be in a good spot." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> and I think um, just with the whole hunter recruitment thing, if if you can recruit a bunch of hunters that are doing the things that you are preaching. You know, uh, you're not going to have those run and gun guys that are just, you know, blowing through your spot in ATVs, you know, you know, driving their ATV right through the bedding areas. You know, if you can, if we can get more hunters that are, you know, kind of, uh, cherishing, cherishing the experience and doing it kind of more like you, then it overall is going to make a better hunting experience for everybody because, you know, you're not going to have hunters, you know. I know for me personally, if I see a guy up in a spot that I wanted to go to, I'm not going to go up there. I'm going to, you know, either find a new spot or, you know, hike a different trail or something like that. Just because I, you know, I don't want that experience. I know that person doesn't want that experience. And if, if we can, you know, if, if we can get all the hunters on the same page, I think it would really go a long way in terms of making a better quality hunting experience for everybody. Totally. I, so kind of a question for you guys, or uh, maybe I'll, I'll give it a bit of a lead up to it. So I, I think that, you know, we, we, we talk about this a lot too, like this whole, like the growth in hunting and the growth in like, like, you know, the, the, the pressure and, and how it's affecting, you know, our, our, this privileged way of life we've had. Um, and I attribute it to like, I think, yeah, mapping is huge. I mean, having those navigation tools, being able to e-scout at home has really helped people kind of find their way further. I think the other, I mean, obviously gear is incredible. There's the, you know, the lightweight gear. I mean, you guys are entirely at fault for creating a backpack tent that you can put a, put a, put a camp stove in. And that's like, just, I, I'm, I'm, 
I, I'm going to use that kit this weekend to basically push further into, you know, winter range uh, grassland territory for mule deer. And that has just facilitated that, which has never been able to do before. Um, so, I mean, basically it's Kevin's fault, but there's probably some responsibility to be spread around. I, I understand that I've, I've taught a few people now and I should take some responsibility. Uh, but I, I, I mean, part of this, you know, there's, is even the athleticism piece that's come in, like, you know, people are even talking about hunting as an athlete, uh, you know, how to you know, work out to be a hunter, to push farther and all that. But I mean, that's, I don't think that's really attracting people. Well, maybe it's attracting a demographic to it. But I think there's like, a, like for the first time ever, hunting is kind of cool. And, and it's like, oh, it's cool to be a hunter. And it's not like, it used to be faux pas. I mean, like people used to look at me like I was a, a weirdo when I told them I was a hunter. And I, I and then I have to explain to them what, what that meant and try to share my story a little bit for that to create that understanding. But now you just say you're, you're a hunter. They're like, oh yeah, I watch Meat Eater. And, they, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a reference point. There's a, and, and Meat Eater's cool or whatever. Um, so, but with everything cool, like things like fall in and out of coolness, right? They're no longer like. Do do you see a potential for hunting just to be kind of a, just a cool thing right now that people are into, and then eventually the you know maybe that cool factor will fade and it'll just become this really hard thing that that you bought a bunch of gear for and you move on to the next cool thing. I think COVID probably had um, you know a part with that. I also want to place a little bit of blame on Joe Rogan because he's got the biggest. Uh, Biggest show in America here, and he talks about bow hunting all the time. Um, yeah, yeah. But I do think... Well, that's the cool factor, right? It is, yeah. And, I mean, you definitely see... Like, I have buddies personally that, you know, anytime I'm hunting with them, they're always talking about Joe Rogan. I'm like, is that why Is that why you're a hunter now? Because Joe Rogan told you to do it? But I also, I think, you know, and Kevin, you can speak on this too, I'm sure. But I, I think... Um, <clears throat> I think COVID definitely pushed a lot of people into the woods because I definitely noticed a, a very large difference in the last two years of, of hunters out in the field. And, you know, I think part of it is because a lot of people had spare time, you know, they were getting uh, stimulus checks and they finally had some money to put into all the gear that you need for hunting. Um, as well as, you know, people wanted to be responsible for their own food. Um, I, that's that's we, my, that's my thought on it. I don't know what you think, Kevin. We also we we also had some meat shortages around that were COVID related because some yeah. meat packing plants would close and stuff like that. So I do think that made people think a little bit more of, oh shit, I should uh, take some responsibility for my food. I do think Steve Meat Eater that whole part has a fair has a fair amount. Um, I'm not saying blame. They have a lot of responsibility for the growth and the change. I I even see, uh, I see Eat Wild tagged a lot on my Instagram stuff. Uh, a lot of from fishing, hunting, whatever, you know, I see. And I, myself, I've hardly eaten store-bought red meat for 10 years. I feel... I feel odd when people come visit my house or something and they go buy some fancy steaks and like, oh, I'm going to make you steak because you made a really good dinner or something. But I just feel a little odd. I'm like, beef almost looks foreign to me now, as fat as it is compared to mm -hmm. elk and deer and all the other stuff I've been eating the last how many ever years. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> 
Um, I also think, you know, social media, mm-hmm. as with everything nowadays, is playing a part, you know, because people can <clears throat> look at the Eat Wild page or look at the Seek Outside page uh, and, and they can see, you know, these awesome pictures of, of a TP set up way back in the woods and they're like, oh man, I want that. Or, you know, they, they see your classes or, I mean, you know, there's so many hunting influencers out there right now. Um, I think it's just like everything, you know, social media is kind of making it more, uh, accessible and people are getting exposed to it. And especially with the kind of the newer culture that exists on those new hunting social media pages being, you know, food driven, being conservation driven. I think a lot of people are seeing it and being like, oh, you know, hunting's not just a bunch of dumb rednecks. Maybe I should try it. I think that's got to have some part of it. I I know a lot of non-hunters really like meat eater. I I was talking to a friend of mine in Dallas maybe a year ago, and I was cooking salmon a certain way. He's like, oh, I saw that on meat eater. I love that show. And he's totally not a hunter. So I think that... The, I think there are a lot of changing of the narrative and the perspective. Uh, it's not maybe as taboo. It's not as scary when I can have all this mapping right at my thing. It's not also not as scary when I can have a stove in my tent if I get too cold. Uh, it's not as scary when Dylan helps teach people how to butcher an animal so they're not sitting there over an elk like, uh-oh. What do I do now? And, yeah. and and because of our conversation, they totally know how to handle the cock and balls. Well, that's going to help. Yeah. That's going to go a long way, like reduce the pussy yeah. barriers 100%. Yeah. yeah. No, it's... The game, game wardens are going to get pissed at us for, you know... <laughs> they're not going to be able to write as many citations now after this podcast. Oh, shoot. Yeah, for sure. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm just curious if it's going to stick. I don't know. That's all. I mean, I, that's like, I mean, like, I think that... You know, I because okay, so one of my observations with with doing this like training people up to be hunters is is and and I've got to get I'm gonna do a survey I'm gonna do a ten year survey of like the you know whatever I, I think it's probably I don't know like ten thousand people that have been through one of our courses in the last ten years we'll say uh, maybe not that seems like a lot but either way like a, a bunch of people and I'd like to survey them to see how many of them have had hunter success and where, and where this journey has taken them and, and how many years say it's taken to have hunter success. If that's the journey they took. Uh, Cause one of my, like one of my observations is that people really love learning how learning stuff and they like being part of a community. So they'll come to an eat wild course and they'll do the butchering class. And they're like, yeah, that was really cool. And they'll come get their hunting license and that was fun. And it was cool. And then they'll start buying a bunch of gear. Cause that's always fun. Everybody likes buying gear. And then, they might not ever go hunting. They just get into this cycle of learning about it and listening to the podcast. And then, and they're now they're part of a community and they'll join the BHA. And now they're like hanging out with a bunch of hunters and they don't actually have time to go hunting or they'll go a little bit, but it's not really like the central part of it. It's all these other things around it that create, you know, a little bit of a, a, a place to, yeah, well, community and knowledge and, and, and skills development and of course, buying gear, and uh, and and that's enough for so many people. And they'll do this for, you know, I'll see them around in my community for four or five or six years, and they still haven't killed a deer. 
and I think it's largely because they probably haven't really even gone, haven't dedicated what I think is the reasonable amount of time to have success, which I, which is a lot of time here, especially here in BC. So I think there's a bit, there's a bit of that happening, and I and I wonder, mm-hmm. you know, how much of that yeah. were like when we see these huge followings of, 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 you know, these of these so the social media influencers and such, like, or the following same media, like, I mean, how of those people, I, I'm sure like not all of them are boots on the ground hunters, they're just part of our community in one fashion or another, and I'm curious to see if that if that will like continue if that'll change like can we continue to keep this community engaged this tertiary or secondary community i don't know i'm just kind of curious but i, I feel like Here, there's, some, there's some of that going on for sure here's what i think and this is me looking into my crystal ball which may or may not be accurate it may be as as accurate as a mood ring or one of those balls you have as as a kid that says you are going to whatever right um what i think is the last 10 years, there has been an explosive growth in a certain type of hunting uh, that has also melded with, I think, a fair growth in recreationalism as a whole. For instance, our local ice climbing park in the winter is far busier than it was 10 years ago. I think that all of pack rafting has grown a lot in 10 years. All, a lot of these sports have grown a lot as I think people have gotten engaged. Over time, I think there will be some people that drop out and some people that age out. And I'm going to start saying out like a Canadian now because uh, out, I love how you guys out. say that, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, be stealing your accent. Um, but I think there's going to be... I don't think it's going to substantially go down. Let's say we've recruited this number of hunters, say 10,000 or 10,000 into a sport, like extreme mountain biking or whatever, right? Um, Maybe 10 or 20% of them age out every year, but you're also bringing in a new 10 or 20% that is getting into it. Now, economic conditions, things like that could all play a big role as well as regulations things like loss of public land could play a big role in in some of that stuff uh but that's just kind of my crystal ball yeah well i think another factor is i mean a lot of the elk hunting and western hunting and i'm sure the hunting that you do is very hard it's very it is difficult to to get into some of these spots i mean a lot of the time you're you know, having to having to climb two thousand, three thousand vertical feet and, you know, three, four miles with, you know, a forty, fifty pound pack on. Um, and I think I know personally from this year I I took a, a few guys out elk hunting, um, that were from out of state. And um, you know, we we put in some very brutal days. And I know I know a, a few of them um are probably not gonna be elk hunting next year uh and i think there's you know uh i think there's probably a certain portion of people that have tried it in these past few years that are just like man that was freaking hard i think i'd rather just go to the grocery store um what do you see from your end in canada has there been an explosive growth in all the different recreations over the last 10 15 years well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so my other, like, 
eat well just is like a my a side project i actually i manage provincial parks for a living and uh and so i've been doing that since i was 20 or something i've been a park ranger so uh, and i now i currently manage i oversee the management of the provincial parks throughout the lower mainland um so that includes you know some really high use parks a, a couple of my well, I have about seven parks that have over a million visitors a year um, in my it, under my management. So I so I, I really see it. I see this incredible demand for recreation, and it's been like the the, the stats on on the, the the explosion. Even pre-COVID, we were we were dealing with like exponential growth every year uh, of of visitor demand for for hiking and 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 backcountry skiing and snowshoeing and just like whatever you can figure out how to, to do. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's astronomical, the growth here in BC. Um, so yeah, we're, we're yeah. seeing it across the board and like, we've got some pretty interesting stories. Like we had this one, we had this one park in the middle of nowhere. Like it's a, it's a near Whistler. You probably heard of Whistler, BC. It's a beautiful spot where it's one of our ski resorts, but another hour North, it's like a three hour drive from Vancouver. It's a place called Joffrey Lake. And it's a, we rebuilt the trail there. Um, so it's now it's an, uh, about a 45 minute walk up to this uh, beautiful like aqua green um, uh, alpine lake with like glaciers kind of like falling into this lake. It's a spectacular spot. And there just happens to be this fairly like large old growth timber that, that, that has fallen into the lake. And, and it's the perfect spot to get a, your selfie taken. So you, you walk out on this log, you turn around, you got glaciers in the background, you're standing on this lake, get your picture taken. That park went from having about 30 people going up that trail every day to, to over 3,000 people a day. And now we have to like literally shut down the highway because it, there's so many people showing up to this one park. Now it's not because, I mean, the only thing connecting th- that 30 to 300,000 visitors is social media. And the people going, I want to have that experience. They see their picture of their friend on the selfie log, and they want that same experience. And if you if you were to Google or go to Instagram and you go to Joffrey Lake, you know, selfie log, you'd, you'd see what I'm talking about. And it's a spectacular picture, but it's entirely driven by, you know, and it, and it's also a group of people that have never visited a park before. They're not like a graduating to this park. And this is a three hour drive and it's actually an Alpine mountain experience. I mean, they, they, there's no graduated approach. Like I, I hiked on this like local trail and now I'm gonna go farther afield. This is just strictly, I saw my friend doing it and now I wanna do it. And now it's this incredible exponential growth in what is, you know, pretty cool activity, but man, it's, it's across the board. We're seeing it everywhere, I th- so. I think it's very similar here. I mean, I know, I've went to Yellowstone maybe 15 years ago in the summer, not even worried about getting a campsite because it was relatively easy to get. And now just trying to get in Yellowstone in the summer, you may as well be at Disney World or something, or that's kind of what it seems. And even trails here, for a while I hoped that our bigger attractions would take the brunt of everything and that you could keep the hard a lot of users at these couple real popular spots but the rest of the places would remain with very little use but last year during COVID I I could see I would see 30 people at a trail that I considered a a low use trail that was off the beaten path to a different lake 
that people really shouldn't know. And the one thing I can really tie it to is the phone and the Instagram selfie because it would be a great lake to take a Instagram selfie in front of. Yeah. Well, I've, I've seen that in personal experience, you know, people that, um, you know, uh, I'm from Denver, Boulder here in Colorado, which is, you know, a, a bigger city than where I live at now. And, <clears throat> you know, you there'd be people that I grew up with that uh, were not nearly into the woods as I was, not nearly as into the woods as I was. And, um, but, you know, recently I'll go visit them and, you know, that we'll be talking and they'll, they'll say, oh yeah, I went up to, you know, so-and-so lake or whatever. And I'm like, man, like, where did you hear about that? And then of course, like two days later, I'll see that lake on Instagram and, you know, it's a pretty clear correlation. And I think, uh, just the, the whole travel culture is kind of, I, I think, I think it might fall out of, out of fashion here. Uh, that's, you know, my positive side, right? Cause I mean, if it, if it stays in pop culture, like it is kind of now, um, we might have some pretty big issues, but I, I do, you know, with, with things like that, where it's like, a you know, where it's on Instagram, they, they seem not to have very long shelf lives. And that's what I'm hoping for with the whole well, outdoor culture. Well, on Instagram, you now have like tag responsibly and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I, I've been screwing with that. Right. And <laughs> I've been putting ridiculous locations on a photo that I take. What, what has surprised me is that people have actually been like, Hey, you're in the neighborhood. Come by for a visit. I'm like, you didn't notice the aspens and two moose in the photo? You know, <laughs> uh, 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 I'm not in the farmland. You know? Yeah. I literally, the other day I posted a picture on Instagram and it was a mountain lake with like rocks, clearly giant mountains. And uh, I tagged it as like Iowa or Ohio or something like that. And I had a buddy that texted me like, when the hell were you in Iowa? I was like, God damn. I wasn't. <laughs> had to give away, had to give away the secret, but yeah, that, I think that's yeah. the way to go now. Well, you know, I've had to. <clears throat> I was just going to reflect on this when you just were talking about there, Ryan, and and like so in both my hunting life and my park management life. If I went back ten years, well, maybe even a bit more. So, in the park management world, you know, the relevance of parks was suffering maybe fifteen years ago. What well, was People were not we we weren't engaging new Canadians to come out to parks. We weren't we we had an aging demographic of people who valued parks, and the mantra of like the day was like, how do we make parks more relevant to people? And it almost like without even doing like we were coming up with all these kinds of ideas of like, well, let's get out to the you know the how do you know let let's how do we make these more family friendly or how do we make these more new Canadian friendly? And and we were coming up with all these ideas and trying to engage these communities. And then overnight it happened with Instagram. And and now we're in this situation where we're like, okay, wow, okay, great. Now our parks are relevant. They're full. People are banging on the doors to get in here. Um, what do we do now? And and that's where I mean that's what I'm that's what I do now. I, I I'm like I, I have I'm coming up with reservation systems for you know, trail access, that type of thing, and implementing them, but you know, and and it's you know, it's just sort of a good problem to have because not being relevant is a lot more dangerous because then we don't have parks, period. And for the reality is like the impact of recreation on our parklands is very small, really. 
because the larger areas of our parks are relatively unaffected. And now we're talking about, you know, we're at 14% of the population, 14% of the province is protected. There's a lot of momentum here to push that to 30%. Um, and this is all part because we're relevant. It's relevant now. And I've got buckets of money right now to go spend on recreational infrastructure for the first time in my career. Like I've been doing this for 25 years. I've never had a budget increase in 25 years. Uh, so that's like a reflection of decrease in relevance. And so now I can go out, I can build anything you want right now because I've got money to do it, which is a really good news story. It comes with real problems, right? So in the same thing in the hunting world, like 15 years ago, I was part of a project management team when I was, uh, and this was with government. And, and, and we were trying to figure out how do we make hunting more, how do we build hunter recruitment? How do we get more hunters on board? And I was part of a project team and I was like, I think we could create alignment between like foodies out there, people at farmer's markets and alignment with those people at MEC because they're already out there anyway. It's like, maybe we can come up with a program where we reach out to them and we build alliances and we, we show them the path to becoming hunters. And at the time, I, I called it the hunting for hippies program and thinking that we could attract those types of folks to hunting. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, the uh, project itself, uh, it kind of sat on the shelf for a little bit, but at the same time, it kind of happened on its own outside of that, right? Because those connections were, were, mm -hmm. were made through, well, Eat Wild kind of was born out of that idea, but outside of government and, uh, and, and so on. But I mean, everything from, I mean, obviously, I mean, the amazing work that Stephen Rennell has done with his, with his storytelling is really, I think, kind of forged this way forward. Um, and, and it's really been an amazing thing to see happen. But now we're at a place where I think you guys are talking about it and I'm thinking about it. It's like, how do we come up with a day pass, a reservation pass for, so that our, so that the experience can be maintained and people can still access it and well, we can share well, this there, awesome there's, resource. There, there's an education component as well, right? Uh, some of the people haven't had necessarily say the same respect for the resource uh, that some people that have been passionate about the resource for a long time have. So I know in my local community, which has a lot of tourists that come here, they've done things like have uh, the police will teach people about four-wheel drive etiquette so fights aren't busting out on four-wheel drive trails over whose right-of-way it is or things like that. So there's been a fair amount of the education and teaching some form of responsible use lead i don't want to say necessarily leave no trace but some sort of some sort of responsible use yeah yeah i well and and that's what yeah i mean that's the heart that's the we're, we're the same i mean bringing in the same parallel story of park management we're constantly trying to build videos and reach an audience to help people with the responsible recreation especially when you're dealing with people who you know a lot of our community that's coming out have, have never connected with wilderness or a park or a mm -hmm. camping experience so there's a lot of learning opportunities to create there but it's similar here like i mean that's I mean, again that comes back to the whole you know figuring out how, eat wild like how, how do you how do you reach people and what do you how do you what are the things they don't know about this stuff like you know and and, uh, and trying to figure out what people don't know and what those barriers are and then build programming to help them understand it. And, uh, that's always a trip because, you know, the things that if you grew up with this stuff and like, you know, I know what North means cause I, that's, it's just a foundational thing, but a lot of people don't know what, 
what the like what the connection mm-hmm. between north is and the world <laughs> and that it's actually like there's there's a magnetic north that points to a thing up there and we kind of orient our whole existence to this concept of you know you know a nor- you know having a having a northern yeah yeah so let's go let's go a little lighter and talk on the fun side okay. instead of the yeah. deep philosophical okay tell us about your sheep hunt okay so what you what's rad yeah what's rad i don't know if you can see this you see that Oh, you got the euro mount. Uh, yeah, so we just I just got Texas. So this whole time we've been chatting, I've been like so excited to text back on my, my taxidermist and say, when can I come grab it? The crazy thing is, is that my taxidermist is in Abbotsford. So I'm in Vancouver. So like uh, about 45 minutes apart under normal circumstances. But the highway is flooded between me and my taxidermist. So the highway is now flooded between me and getting that sheep home for indefinitely. Got to get a jet ski. Do, I, no, trust Jet me. I, 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 no, the, the first thing I'm gonna do, like, because it's because it's just this amazing volunteer effort going on uh, of of um, folks in jet boats, uh, and, and no doubt they're all part of the hunting community are zipping around in their jet boats, like serving, like literally, like saving cats and moving people around, and because it's the only way to get around on these floodwaters, right, in two or three feet of water. So, um, I was like, well, there you go. I, I bet, I bet you, there's a. I have a friend out there with the jet boat in the valley on the water. I can be like. If you're not saving someone's cat right now, can you just go get me, go, go grab my, go grab my, my sheep? But oh man, but yeah, no, what a awesome adventure, man! Like, uh, have you guys, have you guys done a sheep hunt? Have you, have you? I've only done an odd ad Barbary in Texas, which is like a poor man's sheep hunt. Okay. But it was, it was on a private ranch. It wasn't any. F- fly in remote Northwest Territories or, or, you know, Wrangell, St. Elias or anything like that. Yeah. Your guys' was in BC, right? You did it in BC or was it somewhere else? I can't really say for sure. That's a little too specific for me. <laughs> Word. <laughs> hey, understandable. I'm just understandable. Yeah, no, of course not. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. No, we're BC. I'm, I'm sure there's people out there that would yeah. like hear what province you were talking about then go watch the videos, look at the pictures. Be like, oh, I bet that's that mountain range and that's, oh, no. that's that creek. Oh, that happens. Um, <laughs> Ryan Lampers and Brian Call filmed a video on the Frank Church of a deer hunt. And the next year they went in, there were people in the spot where they did, even though I think it was a fly-in hunt. And it turned out they found out by watching the video, then asking outfitters or friends if they had seen like this spot. So you could just make it simple for everyone and save everyone the homework and just tag it with the GPS locations on your Instagram. I'll tell you what, I'll give, I'll say, listen to the podcast because we did, we did a three-part series on the podcast. You can check it out, the Eat Wild podcast. It's a ton of fun. You get the story from four different perspectives um, and, uh, and, and they're all great people. Jenny P, my, my, my hunting partner and, and, and now, and sheep hunting partner. Um, My, 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 my friend Spencer, he's an indigenous guy. It's his first hunt outside of his traditional territory. So it was pretty cool to, it's just, he's, he's always hunted traditionally for, for food with his elders. And this was his first time doing kind of an adventure hunt and then a good buddy of mine a real backcountry expert uh, scott so um anyways the, the fantastic crew but uh no this is it just came together for the first time I and mean, like i i i've i've planned a sheep hunt every year for the past 10 years and it's involved you know like float planes jet boats horseback hunting i mean every adventure was super cool 
um, but unsuccessful. And like and, and in some cases, hugely unsuccessful because you don't even get out of the wall tent like onto the trail and you know to get up to the alpine where you're going to take off for 10 days because it's rains straight for 10 days or you fly into a place and you live inside your seek outside tent in a snowstorm for six straight days while it while, while winter storm tries to blow you off the mountain and like that's that i mean so so yeah they've been you know every they've all been fun adventures but most of which we got very little hunting and i, I had one trip about five or six years ago that we went up, we flew in and we climbed up by my buddy Rob and I, and we actually got like seven out of 10 days of stone sheep hunting in. So we actually got every, you know, seven days of hiking around glass and seeing sheep every day. It was fantastic. But the other trips have been basically blowouts with like one or two days here and there to hunt. It's just so unpredictable. So this hunt was, was awesome because we, we did get favorable hunting weather and, um, we actually we flew in and we used uh, pack rafts to uh, get get a ways down a river to kind of access an area that is relatively under un, un, unpressured, and then we hiked in and and we 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 went in there a couple days early uh, ahead of the opening and, and and found well it was we found sheep right away. Um, actually, our our my one friend Spencer who's never been sheep hunting before, um, we base camped up on on a sort of a ridge and we kind of. In the morning, we kind of each, we had two, Jenny and I went one way and Scott and Spencer went the other way, kind of heading off, climbing up into where we, we thought we'd find sheep. Spencer and Scott climbed up 45 minutes on their first ever day of sheep hunting, put their spotting scope down and looked at a ridge and there's a sheep. They look at the sheep and they're like, that looks like a legal sheep. And in the end, it turned out to be this, this uh, ram that we, that, uh, that uh, was uh, about four inches over the brow of its nose, like so full curl, like this giant. One side of his his uh, his his horns were just massive, and, and kind of he had sustained an injury, and it kind of forced his horn in a bit of an odd direction, and it came up over the bridge of his nose, making him a legal ram, and kind of a no doubter legal ram. So, forty five minutes into their first sheep hunt. Meanwhile, you know they get back to camp and tell us about how they've you know found this amazing ram and and. Uh, and and I'm like, really? Forty five minutes into your first sheep hunt? I've had ten years of freaking blowouts. And forty five minutes in your first okay, great, great. And they're sort of like, Well, you know, if you know, if you guys if you want to go up and shoot them, I mean you're the experienced guy, you put this trip together, you you know, we totally support you going to shoot it. I'm like, Oh my god, no, I can't <laughs> like I can't do that. But uh, I'm gonna be really I'm gonna be sort of beside myself here for a little while. Um and uh Anyways, we we uh, yeah we we ended up going back up that same ridge the next day because despite the fact that it sounded like it was a no doubt a ram, like my own doubt as a relatively experienced sheep hunter that like the chances of seeing a legal ram forty five minutes into your first sheep hunt is just about zero. So they must be seeing something that as inexperienced sheep hunters like they can't possibly be a real you know, illegal sheep and. So we thought, well, it's best to invest, like, you know, the four of us going out there and looking at this this group of rams and making sure that it's illegal before we make a call on where we're going to be for our opening day. And sure enough, we climb back up there and we pop up over the ridge, put the spoiling scoop on on this thing. And I'm like, it's, it's, it's no doubt or legal ram, four inches above the brow of his nose. Yep. Like, we end up calling him Tusker because he's just got this giant tusk of a sort of horn growing out of his nose, basically. 
so now I'm really like, I'm like, okay, man, it's real. And like, this is awesome. And we're going to like likely get a sheep out of this thing. And I'm sitting on the same hill and I'm looking back towards where Jenny and I were the day before. And I, and I could see a, like, I, I've got my spawning scope out and I could see a group of sheep that I hadn't seen the day before, kind of in an obvious spot that I can't believe we didn't see them or maybe they just weren't there. And there's a sheep up with them. That's I can say from like four kilometers away, it's a special sheep, like a really special sheep. And I'm like, oh my, that's unbelievable. So there we are, day before opening day, like likely two legal rams to chase after the next day. And and uh, yeah, it, it just like, we got up at three in the morning the next day and went after, each pair of us went after our hunts and we, uh, we Jay and I got up to where, we could uh, kind of get a closer look at these sheep and, and, and the ram was there uh, at seven in the morning. He was bedded, or maybe six thirty in the morning. He was bedded down on top of this knob and we were really concerned about getting to him. And if you hunt open country, like, you know, like, you know, I'm not a long range shooter. Like I, I, I'm like, I like shooting things that under a hundred yards, ideally, you know, my comfort zone is 200 yards for a sheep, maybe, you know, maybe push it out to 250 if I've got a, if I'm laying down, but I'm not, it's not my thing. So, I mean, I want to get close and we're still a kilometer away, but at least we can see him now and we can see that he's, that he's, he's going to be legal. He's got all the characteristics of a mature ram. And, uh, almost like at that, at that point, I'm 90% sure he's legal, but I, I want to, obviously we're going to have a closer look. But the incredible thing was, is it just happened to be like a, between us and him, there was a little bump that gave us a hundred percent coverage. So we could just walk right up to them and stay behind this bump and be within a hundred yards of this group of sheep that are bedded down. And so we, so we get on, we got on our horse there. We, we cruise over there. I drop my, I drop my bag and I, I'm like crawling up over this bump. And I'm like, I have this like realization, like, this is like, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot a sheep. And I've like never even come close to having this feeling. Like, I mean, like 10 years of blows, like I've never, I've seen a couple of legal rams at like mountains, mountains and mountains away and like with no chance of getting there. And like, it's the first time I'm like, holy, holy jump. And like, I'm going to shoot a sheep. So you know, get a hold of yourself and get calm and get focused. Like let's, let's do this and let's make sure this is a hundred percent legal. And then let's not fuck up the, the shot. And so I'm like crawling over up this bump and I'm peek my nose over and I, all excited and there's one sheep there and it's like a four-year-old little sheep bedded down in the same spot of all these other rams that were hanging out there I'm like fuck of course of course you're not gonna kill a sheep this is sheep hunting right like sheep hunting you know you know oh, you don't actually kill sheep when you go sheep hunting you just go through a series of disappointments and this is just another one and meanwhile my buddies are gonna be over on that other hill they're gonna have their legal ram you know on opening day within two hours ain't no big deal you know i can deal with this so so Jenny and I end up sitting on top of this bump, you know, kind of out of view of this one little sheep, well, one one young sheep that's sitting there, and we're trying to puzzle out what to do, and like we know these sheep are going to be back on, like likely back on this bump first thing in the morning. We just got to get there earlier, so that's one option. But we also know that our buddies they're on this like ram, and they're You're probably talking thirty five Celsius, and it's also like thirty five degrees or something. It's crazy hot. So we know that if we get back to camp tonight, that we're leaving because it's so hot. Celsius. I was going to say, yeah. 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 So, yeah. So very hot. So maybe 30, like 
35 cells maybe an exaggeration but it's hot man it's like muggy and hot totally unseasonable but we had this like i don't know if you guys had this thing this heat dome thing that was going on down like it's we just crazy hot weather in the first of august this year and anyway so like we knew that if we kill an animal it's going to be a hustle to get this thing off the hill and and we knew that if if our buddies killed build this ram like we weren't you know we weren't going to stick around to hunt another day out there we had to go so we're sitting there and, I, and I'm sort of puzzled, just going, do we come back or do we push on? But you don't want to push on because it's the same analogy of fish in the water that I was talking about. Like you just screw it up. And, and we, we sit there for like about an hour contemplating what we should do. And just below us, I, 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 hear, I hear something. And on the scree slope below us, I see a sheep cruising around. And I'm like, oh, there's a sheep down there. And I'm kind of looking at it. I'm like, oh, there's another sheep. There's 36 sheep bedded down about between 60 and 150 meters below me. And, uh, fuck. Yeah. So like, and the whole time we were, and we're chatting and talking and we're fully exposed to these sheep. Like they can see us. We're, we're hiding really good from this one ram that's like a hundred yards away from it. But all these other sheep are down below us and they're getting kind of social. They're all getting up and they're talking to each other and button heads and hanging out. But we don't we don't see the mature there's, there's 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 five or six mature rams with this giant group of rams and um or sorry giant group of sheep I should say which included you know uh you know uh ewes and ewes and lambs and young rams and such and we're and we're well now we're watching them and we're like well that's I guess that's sort of a good sign there's still sheep here like they, maybe they haven't we didn't blow them off out of the country when we came over here that's a good thing so maybe we should just hang out and we're and we're looking down the scree slope when you kind of start to see into these features and there's actually like this sort of giant cave in the, in the, in the, in the rock structure. And at the base of the cave, I could see something bedded down. I asked if something bedded down and I kind of pointed out to Jenny and she gets the spotting scope on it. And she's, she gets the spotting scope. She'll say, Oh, 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 monster, 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 monster coming out of the cave. And I get my binocs up and there's a, there's a legal, well, there's, it is a legal ram, uh, a mature ram, walking out of the cave there's they've been bedded down inside of a cave on the side of a mountain and they, and this one ram emerges and he and he emerges and he, he walks down the main sheep trail across the slope and then goes right below us and then he starts beating up on some other rams that are that had been bedded down below us but we couldn't quite see him because the angle of the hill well it turns out that the the gentleman ram which was the one we ended up shooting the 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 uh the the there's a 10 year old in the group um he was bedded down. That was what you called him. Was gentleman? That was his he, name. Well, yeah, because kind of what your name. Yeah, because he was. Quite, or is that like a term? For no, rams? no, it's because he he was such a gentleman because he was. Uh, okay. He was hanging out with like all kinds of women and children, and he was like just chilling out, hanging out, and he wouldn't wouldn't get involved in any of the fighting with the other rams. He just bedded down, hang out. He had little. He had ewes jumping on his back and like rolling around on top of him. Didn't didn't bother, and like he seemed to have a lot of like female company. So we. We call him the gentleman ramp because he just, you know, was a cool guy. And uh, nice. No, anyway. anyway so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I just had to be clear. I wasn't sure yeah. if that was like a sheep term or something. Oh no, no. It's no, no, that's we call him the gentleman ram there. So I like it. Yeah, I like it. Totally. Got it. It was, it was stuck anyway. So, but yeah. So we're, so now we're, we've, we've sort of we've located the rams. So the ram that walked out of the cave turns out he's he's a nine year old ram. He's a mature ram, and he goes over and he beds down next to this other group of rams where we can just see bits and pieces of these other rams. And I can just see the top part of what I think is the gentleman ram's 
horns, just the back, the back of his horns and, uh, of one horn, just like, just bridging above the rock. And, and then of course his nine-year-old bed's down right next to him and I can see all of him and I'm looking at him and, and he's, I can count nine rings and he's full curl. And I'm like, Jesus, I, I can't believe this, but I, that's a, that's a legal ram and he's bedded down and he's 90 yards from me. And I'm, and I could, and, and Jenny's like, are you sure he's legal? I'm like, oh, he's hundred percent legal. She's like, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. I'm like, I just want to see the other one. I just want to see the gentleman because the gentleman ran when I saw him from three kilometers away. I was, he had so much mass that he carried throughout his whole horns. And that's one of the characteristics of mature rams as they carry more mass and throughout the full curl. And, and yeah, so I just, I, I just wanted to see, see him more. I wanted to get a, a clean count on him. The, the rams in, in BC, we, have, we can, we can kill rams that cross the bridge of their nose. The, the curl has to cross the bridge of the nose or that the, uh, or that they have eight annuli, um, uh, throughout uh, on their horns, right? So, uh, now this guy here, like the, the nine-year-old who we called eventually number two, um, had like annual that just jumped right off his horns. You could just see them. No problem. With your binoculars, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, legal Ram nine. Yeah. Probably nine Ram. Yeah. Uh, and he had a, a, a sweepy curl that, that came up over the bridge of his nose. So he was like clearly Eagle. But the gentleman was sort of, a, he did he just had mass and he also had dark horns, which made it really hard to actually see the annuli jumping off his horns. So while I had him on the spotting scope and I could see the better part of one horn, I, I, I just couldn't really comfortably see all, well, at least eight rings to distinguish if it was legal. So we sat there for like probably 45 minutes and just watched and watched and watched and counted and... And every once in a while, Jenny would be like, shoot him, shoot him, <laughs> encouraging me to shoot number two. And I, I just, yeah. Anyways, I, he just turned his head just enough and picked up some more light. And it just gave me a, a clean look that he was, that he had eight rings and he had all the mature characteristics. I, I knew he was legal, but I, I just could never imagine not being, a, you know, a hundred percent sure. And, uh, and I saw he's legal and I, and, and, and I said, Jenny, I'll, I'll shoot him when he gets up. And just after I said, he got up and I shot him and he, yeah, just tumbled downhill and all of his buddies just like looked down the hill, watched him fall down the hill and we could see him piled up quite a ways down the scree slope. And then now we've got this other bit of a complex problem now because, I mean, Jenny's got a sheep tag on her pocket and there's a legal nine-year-old ram, beautiful ram standing there looking at his buddy who just rolled down the hill. So, but uh, Jenny opted to come back and get him next year. And uh, mm -hmm. do the responsible thing, which was to. So, so how was he as table fare? Oh, he's fantastic. It's a surprisingly yeah. tender. Now, I don't know if it's because of the, of the, you know, eight hundred meter tumble down the scree slope, or if it's because just an old, old beat up old sheep. He's just been tenderized over the years, but it's uh, remarkably good, remarkably tender, uh, and uh, wonderful flavor. Like way less. Uh, gamey than I would have expected. Like I, I thought for sure he would have been uh, more sheepy or rammy, but he's uh, super mild, nice and fat. Like, oh, the fattiness in them is a real treat for, for us, you know, 
folks who eat it, a lot of wild game. Is the fat actually decent? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, we've just hammered fat. Like that night when we got back, um, so we turned the inReach on like after we had recovered this animal. And sure enough, the message from the boys was ram down at 8.30. We were at 9.30 that we had our ram down. So now we've got two rams. So we know we're heading down, right? So um, we we made it back to, uh, back up. The, we He fell off the wrong side of the mountain. We went back up the mountain with the sheep, uh, up over the hill, and then back down to camp, which is another four hours or something. And we had a little uh, creek next to camp, which we, we threw the all the quarters into like clear plastic bags and then just uh, put them in the creek to cool down. And the creek was nice and cold. That was kind of what saved us. But we but we ate the ribs and, and they're just like layered in fat and cooked them over a fire that night. And yeah, that was like, you just couldn't get enough. I mean, we were so depleted in terms of energy. That was a it's like a 20 something hour day to get up and get after those rams and when we were back and... That was a real amazing treat to, yeah, yeah. How did the pack work for you? Uh, I love the simplicity of the pack. The uh, so so which one did we end up with? It's the uh, the you, you you had a Brooks in our super special unicorn fabric. Yes, yeah. So, so it's a Brooks. What we, yeah, yeah. And we they've been on several. We've had that same fabric on quite a few sheep hunts this year. Uh, different people using it, uh, quite a few testers out there, and we plan on uh, introducing it at some point as an option, but it's super light and super strong and pretty darn waterproof as well. It, 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 was, it was so, it, it's really nice. I mean, I think that pack weighs less than three pounds when it's, you know, empty. And uh, the... Uh, I really enjoy it. Like the, the frame on it gives me a lot of confidence. Like it feels like all that weight is in the right part of my, of my back as I'm as I'm hiking with it, and, and it's really stable on my back as well. It doesn't want to shift around, which is something that you get the heavier loads. And with some of my with my I I've had a Kuyu for 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 years, and um, when I get heavier loads in it, the it's got a very narrow frame down it, and it kind of wants to walk back. It kind of wants to shift on my back and I eventually gets a bit tiresome. So the wider frame really stabilized with a load on the back, which I, which I really liked. Um, it took a little longer to get used to the simplicity of the back. Like it's, you know, it's just got the, the, the two big side pockets on the side. But once my system was dialed, like I, I actually quite liked being kind of forced into a simpler pattern of gear management on a trip. And so I, and, and then the, that Brooks also, the reason why I kind of jumped at it is it's got that it, it it sort of folds up a little bit and turns into a a really slick day pack um, mm-hmm. without also some and you can kind of wrap your rifle in, inside that as you roll it up mm-hmm. and I thought that was really smart so there's um yeah no I I, I thought the the pack worked great and then and of course the benefit for us was that once we you know, we ended up running these sheep down the river, down to the river, uh, where we had our pack rush stashed and then we went down river. So it was a treat to have a pack that was, you know, definitely waterproof enough to live in the bow of the boat and, uh, take a bit of water and, and also like keep my gear relatively dry. Um, cause we ended up, you know, sort of maxing out our dry bag space with, uh, throwing all the meat into dry bags and keeping it submerged either under the, uh, we, uh, 
took all our sheet meat and kind of laid it in dry bags and put it underneath on the floor of our of our alpaca rafts underneath the inflatable floor so there was constant water rushing over it as we were working our way down the river to uh, manage the the heat and um so yeah that that pack is cool i, I like it um yeah no i think uh yeah, I, I I've been enjoying been enjoying running it. I think it'll be my go-to for particularly for expedition trips going forward. Awesome! If you could send us a couple photos without without the details of where you are, so we can kind of include some field photos from the testing. Yeah, I that got a couple of nice ones polished up for you for with the with the ram and on the scree slope and loading it up with sheep that shall which I'll send to you. Awesome! Yeah, nice. Well, thanks for sharing, Dylan. I, I got one more question before. I'm sure it's getting late over there. It's kind of getting late over here. But um, I feel like uh, a lot of times when I've talked to sheep hunters, after they get, you know, are successful on a sheep hunt, that's like all that they want to do from now. You know, for the, they'd give up all the other hunting just to be successful on sheep hunts. Are you, are you addicted now? No, I'm re- no, dude. I'm retired. <laughs> you're retired. You're done. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, man. I'm like I'm one and done, hundred yeah. percent, man. I, I like I have like, I mean, like, <clears throat> there's so many awesome adventures to go on here. I mean, we're so fortunate in BC. Like, like, mm-hmm. I, like I haven't. I mean, I, I saw some fo- photos from you guys as uh, caribou hunt up north there, and like, like, like you know, but like caribou hunt. I, I, I want to go shoot like a gigantic you know alaskan bull moose you know like there, there's so many adventures to to go on and like they all take time and resource and planning mm-hmm. and like i only have like like i can only plan one adventure hunt a year like that was a year's worth of planning it started with you know like conversation with kevin a year ago about pack designs and what you know gear to bring and tents to bring like and and you know i trust me i got i, I dug for my research man like i, I you know like <laughs> it takes a year right and so i love doing that part so I think like next year it's, it's I think it's going to be a caribou. I think we're going to do like a something with caribou and maybe we'll sneak in a moose hunt. I got some time off next year. I might do a monster moose hunt. I still haven't done a, I've, I'm just warming up to the idea of, of killing a, a goat. I've never, I never shot a goat. I kind of find them fascinating. So I, I, I'm reluctant to. And then, and then like, I, I can't go a year without elk hunting. Um, you know, like, I just can't go a year without it. So, and then there's like monster mule deer hunting later in you know in November here in BC. So, you just can't fit it all in. So the, the the sheep thing has been a bit of a problem because it occupies two weeks a year, a lot of planning effort, and uh, and now I can kind of be like, okay, I've I've had that adventure. I'm on the hook, of course, to go back to get number two with um, with Jenny whenever she wants to go as a as a sheep hunting partner. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think I could, uh, I'll, I'll still sheep hunt for sure, but I certainly don't need to kill another ram and, and this one's a, a beauty and, um, yeah, the gentleman will be just fine for my wall and, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, won't say never, but not, uh, I got a few, few other great adventures ahead while I still got my knees that, uh, I want to go on for sure. Okay. Interesting. You're like that dude that, you know, tried heroin once and was able to put it down you know <laughs> yeah, <totally>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was pretty good but yeah i know after that yeah once you've done it once yeah. it's, <laughs> it's yeah. all you need <laughs> all you need no for sure yeah it's been fun guys it's been good, good great to connect yeah, oh awesome. yeah for sure kevin thanks you got t- anything else no thanks for taking the time to uh, join us yeah cool 
next ex- expedition hunt come down to colorado i yeah i'd love to I, you know, i'd love to come hunt deer down there like i just like like get on a I, the, the pictures that I see, I mean, again, I, I, I was actually, was, those were my, actually my questions for you guys eventually. Like, we're running out of time now, but I, like, I kind of wanted to unwrap or try to understand, like, the, because, because my understanding of hunting in the States is wrapped up in uh, what I see on Instagram, right? Similar to, I'm mm-hmm. sure, what you interpret to be BC hunting is, you know, wrapped up in the images and the storytelling you hear from us. And I, and I just kind of want to know, like, is it like, I mean, God, there's some nice bucks get killed in the States and is it all like that? Or like, you know, so, uh, so I, I'm curious, I think it'd be fun to go for an adventure, but, uh, I know that Kevin was talking about doing an elk hunt up here in, in a pack raft. And, um, so maybe we'll try and make something there, happen. There are some nice deer around, but you know, unless your name is Ryan Lampers, I don't know that many people that kill them. <laughs> Well, you yeah. know, you know, he he's pretty good at getting big ones down. But uh, I know guys that have decided to go big or go home, and they've been doing a lot of going home, even though you may have spotted it, spotted one or two big ones. And and I'm guilty of the same thing. I've seen a few nice ones, but uh, real nice ones. But every time I go try to hunt them, I feel like I'm just sort of holding the bag and that they boogied out on me. I saw the biggest mule deer I've ever uh, I've seen yet in my mule deer spot this year. And I, it's uh yeah, it's just a, spe- it's, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one more story cause it's kind of fun. And, and uh, so I, I, I had it in my head that I was going to, I'm hanging out with this woman, Mickey for a couple of years. And I was like, she's a keeper for sure. She's uh she loves hunting and adventuring and just she loves food. And we're just having a great time. So I'm like, I should lock this one up, right? Because I've been running single my whole life, and figure this is I'm 45 years old. I this is a smart move, and uh, all my friends think this is a very smart move. Uh, so I organized getting a ring made for her, and uh, kind of had a plan to take her up to this my my mule deer spot, which is a pretty special place to me. It's got relevance to so my my late father and my hunting partner, my my hunting mentors. It's a cool spot. It's also like in the most beautiful part of BC, just like Alpine. Alpine ridges, 360 degrees around us, mountains, right? So I, my plan is, okay, get it. We, we hike up uh, from from the log and slash up into the Alpine. And we actually, we, we ran the Aeolus on this trip. It was the first time in there, which was really nice and roomy tent. You roll out of bed in the morning. You didn't propose an Aeolus. What's that? You didn't propose in an Aeolus. God, no. A classier than that. <laughs> I did, I'll tell you what I did propose it. There is a reference here to seek outside eventually, but um, so I, so I, uh, we roll out of bed. We have a coffee in the morning, and we and we can see this one basin. There's, and there's and uh, it's a buck. It's just a bucky spot. And we get behind the glass, and like halfway through our first cup of coffee, we got two bucks spotted. There's a real nice one, and a, and not a bad one. And so this is great. So and in order to get there, we got to go up and over the summit. This one, like what I call. Big Buck Mountain, and then and where it's just you know, it's called Big Buck Mountain for a reason. And we're gonna summit Big Buck Mountain, and when we get to the summit, I'm gonna you know whip the ring out and ask her to marry me. That's the plan, right? So I uh, so we so we pack up our gear and uh, we 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 set out to go up this ridge and over Big Buck Mountain. And I'm kind of nervous, but I'm kind of glad that this is working out. I can get this engagement thing out of the way early in the trip. And uh, just then, like the fucking that valley cloud just like sucks in, 
and now it's like almost like zero visibility and cold and we're hiking up there and I can, I can, I kind of checking in on Mickey and you can tell she's cold. Like it's not, it's really, it's just not sub zero. And, 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 uh, and I'm like, well, this isn't going to work out great. Like she's shivering cold and there's no view. No, that's not the right time. And we keep, we still have to go up and over this hill and we're still going to go after these bucks regardless if the proposal is not going to work out. So we're still, we're climbing and just as about as we summit Big Muck Mountain, all of a sudden, a little gust of wind pushes all the valley cloud out. Sun comes back out. Temperature goes back up like 10 degrees, 360 degrees around us, beautiful snow-capped alpine peaks. And like, like right on. Okay, it's happening. And I look behind me and Mickey's like just about 30 meters behind me on the trail. So I, I rush up to the summit. I throw down the pack and I, I gather up this, this ring and it's a... Um, I picked some some lichen on the way up, and I've got it. I got to set it in the lichen in the box, and I can hear her footsteps behind me coming. And I'm just kind of got it together finally. So I I turn around and I'm on one knee and I'm looking up at her, and she's looking right past me, and then she's like, "Hey, hey, hey!" And she's hitting me on the shoulder, and she's like, "Sheep, sheep, sheep!" And I'm like looking up at her. And I look over my shoulder. There's a herd a herd of bighorn sheep, like thirty yards from us, staring at us. And, and I'm like looking at her and she finally clues in. She's like, oh, oh, I see what's, oh, okay. I'm like, well, I, I guess this is as good a time as any. At the, so, so, so anyway, she, 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 she clues in what's happening and she, she kneels down too and grabs the ring and, and, uh, and, uh, of course she, yes, I asked her to marry me. She says, yes, the sheep basically circle us just keep walking towards us like basically witness her put the ring on her finger carry on and just like as we're taking pictures of the sheep and ourselves and the ring and everything and then uh and then they eventually get downwind of us and then just kind of run off a ways and and so now we're engaged and <laughs> we got engaged we're both wearing our seek outside packs when we got engaged so you know that, that probably had something to do with it Man, yeah. you should should have taken a photo and shared on our Facebook group. <laughs> yeah, that would have been yeah. that would have been golden. I probably have yeah. something for you. I'll I'll, I'll share it with you. Um, the, the packs aren't super prominent in the pictures, but it was it's for real. So, but yeah. But anyways, we of course we got that out of the way, right? We got that out of the way. We, we chased after our mule deer, and as we got down to the ridge, we look across the ridge, and three hundred yards away from us is the most like stunning example of a mule deer that i've ever seen in southern bc and he's he's just staring down the hill at something not us and it's a little outside uh, of our range and 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 mickey it was mickey's deer to to shoot anyways and uh he just like all of a sudden spooks and he starts running right towards us and now he's like closing the distance towards i'm like is this really gonna happen it's just like massive buck gonna run over us on the trail on our on our engagement day like how about that for a story eh? to have a giant buck and a ring on the finger and anyways he just kept running and just kept running downhill and we never saw him again we but uh it was still just a, just an awesome day man so uh anyways yeah that's awesome i'll share the pictures that with is you guys awesome. okay sounds great man there's a there's a bag limit on days like that you can't you know can't bag two you can't bag a wife and a and a big buck on the on the same day so yeah, I'll, t- I'll I'll take the sheep witness, you know, like the the sheep herd witnessing. Yeah. I'll take that. But I mean, th- it would have been something else. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I guess yeah. you're right. It is a back limit. You're right. I'll, I'll manage my <laughs> expectations for this life. Yeah. Well, awesome. Dylan, thank you. Appreciate you, man. Yeah, right on, you yeah. guys. Thanks for thanks for hanging out. Awesome. Thanks for 
hearing my stories and uh yeah let's hang out again soon mm-hmm.